Well, we're continuing our series in Matthew's Gospel, and if you would turn to chapter 5 with me, we will be closing out the chapter this morning and following along with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 43, Matthew writes, as he records the words of his Savior, Jesus is speaking, and for the last time he says, You have heard it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may, may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, Father, thank you for your word, the word of God that never returns void, the word of God that always accomplishes what it purposes to do. And we ask that you, by your word, would accomplish your purpose today. Lord, I ask that you would open the hearts of everyone listening this morning. You would help me to serve these people that I love. And we ask that you would do this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And for his sake, amen. Well, Matthew 5 43 through 48 is the final illustration Jesus uses to correct the scribes and Pharisees' misuse of the law, as he has, as you would read in this sermon. They use the law to parade their external religion with it, without an outward, without an inward reality. They, they, they lived it on the outside, but there was no inward reality. They were religious in their behavior, but they were unregenerated in their hearts. And as we've seen in these illustrations, these six illustrations, these scribes and Pharisees reduced the law to the lowest common denominator. So they would say, I, I haven't murdered anybody, so my anger is okay. I haven't I haven't committed adultery, so it's okay how I look on a woman, and, and so on through the, the other illustrations Jesus gives. In, in contrast to how the scribes and Pharisees live, Jesus describes a life that is completely different for those who profess to follow him and belong to his kingdom. And in this last illustration, we see once again what the scribes and Pharisees taught about love. We see what Moses teaches about love and what Jesus teaches about love. So let's look at our first point, what the scribes and Pharisees taught about love in 543. Jesus is quoting the Pharisees. He's quoting the teaching that they have given. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now Jesus agrees that the scriptures do, do teach you shall love your neighbor. But he takes issue with their heretical addition to that passage by adding you shall hate your enemy. 
living under, now you have to understand, living under Roman occupation, it's understandable why the, the Jews, particularly the scribes and Pharisees, might want to hate their enemy. But they had it wrong. They had it all wrong because nowhere in the Old Testament does the Lord ever say to hate your enemy. As the people of God, they assumed they were, they were better than others. So they justified their teaching that they could hate others because they were not like them. They were not like the Romans who were pagans. They were not like the Samaritans who were pagans. They were not Gentiles. And so it was okay for them to hate those who were not like them, who were not God's chosen people. And what, how they did this is they did it by redefining the word neighbor. They narrowed the, the idea of neighbor down to it means you only love those who are Jewish. No Gentiles, no pagans, nobody separate. You only love those who believe like you and are like you. That's what the scribes and Pharisees taught. Moses taught something different. In Leviticus 19.18, where, where Jesus is quoting the passage, Moses writes, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The command to love one's neighbor was a command to all mankind, regardless of whether they were Jews or not. In other words, you love everybody, regardless of their spiritual status, regardless of their economical status, regardless if they're a pagan or not. You love everyone. That was the intent and purpose of that verse in Leviticus. He did not say, notice something that Moses did not say. He did not say, hate your enemy but he taught just the opposite. In Exodus 23, 4 and 5, we read this. If you meet your enemy's ox or donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. In other words, you shall help him rescue it. Those, those words are in complete opposition to what the scribes and Pharisees are teaching in their day. And the enemy spoken of here in Exodus 23 is not an enemy soldier on the battlefield, but just someone who has become an enemy, an individual who has become an enemy. And Moses, as well as Jesus, teaches, they're your neighbor. They're your neighbor. The biblical understanding of neighbor was completely redefined and was wrong in the way the Pharisees described it. So that's what Moses taught. What Jesus teaches about love goes even further. In 544, Jesus makes a head-spinning declaration. Look at verse 44. But I say to you, now this is this is God. This is God the Son, giving the word of God, the authoritative, divine word of God. He is, he is taking what the Pharisees and the scribes have said, 
taking what they added to the word of God and he's dismantling it and he is giving them God's view on how we are to live with one another, both friend and foe alike. And he says this, but I say to you. Those are theological words. That's not just a, a pragmatic, grammatical, hey, let me, let me get this point across. These are theological words. I say to you, as the Son of God, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, he's preparing his disciples for the enemies that they would soon face. He told them that if the world hated him, they would hate you also. And as my disciple, he said, you will have enemies. And as a follower of Christ, we have enemies today. Many are hateful towards us and the biblical values that we hold. And the question that Jesus is really forming here and wanting to get across to these to these disciples of his and as you well aware there are scribes and pharisees standing on the fringe listening to this the question is how do you treat your enemies how do you treat them what what do you think about them what what goes on in your heart when you see an enemy, someone, someone who you run across in the grocery store, someone you think about or you read about online, someone that is become your enemy. What do you think about them? What do you think about someone who is a liberal? What do you think about someone who identifies as a Democrat, Antifa, or LGBTQ, or progressives, or just your irritating neighbor, or the boss who mistreats you, or even worse, other Christians in your own church who you are at odds with. Or the thousands of enemies that exist on social media, people who troll you, try to cancel you, slander you, and mock you. What is in your heart? when you think about them. Is this in your heart? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? Here in Matthew 5, Jesus turns the scribes and Pharisees teaching upside down with his divinely authoritative teaching about love and about hate and about enemies. And he, and he shows his disciples some distinctives, three distinctives about how they are to love their enemies and what it means for them to love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them. The first, he says, loving their enemy is a mark of their genuine salvation. Look more in verse 44. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Verse 45, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Jesus is showing them that loving their enemy is a mark of their salvation as being genuine. Listen, we all love our friends most of the time. But Jesus goes much further. In John, in 1 John 4, 7 and 8, 
John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And the one another in that passage also includes our enemies. When Jesus said, love your enemies, his disciples as well would think of the Romans who had occupied and defiled their land. And the scribes and Pharisees listening would be thinking of the Samaritans. But it didn't matter to God. It doesn't matter to God. His disciples are to love everyone. But understand, this is a hard request. Devin's teaching last week was outstanding. And I was I came across this quote from Augustine. Many have learned how to offer the other cheek, but do not know how to love him by whom they were struck. It's easy to turn the other cheek, but how do you feel about the person who hit you? So Jesus raises the standard so much higher by showing them that loving, loving their, their, their enemy is also imitating their father. Look, look on in verse 45, so that you may be sons of your father in, who's in heaven, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For it, do you get that? God in his kindness and in his mercy, he, he doesn't, this rain coming down, it's coming down on those of us who believe are considered just. But it's raining all over this county, all over this state maybe. And it's raining on those who are unjust. God sends the rain. God doesn't just send the rain to Paul Rohr's farm so things will grow. He sends the rain to farmers down the road who don't know him, who are in rebellion to him. Jesus raises this standard by saying, this you imitate your father in heaven when you love as he loves. Now the Greek word for love here in this passage, one that we are all quite familiar with, is you can say it agape, some say it agape, depending on which commentator you're reading or who you're listening to. But the Greek word used here for love is defined as the love which seeks the highest welfare and good of another. When Jesus says, love your enemies, that word agape, the love which seeks the highest welfare and good of another. He is saying, do you, will you seek the highest good and welfare of your enemy? How easy it is to seek the highest good and welfare of your family, of your friends, of even a neighbor. But what about the enemy who should be considered your neighbor? This is how God has treated his enemies, us, regardless of our sin and our rebellion against him. This is how he treated us. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, our treatment of others must never depend upon what they are or upon what they do to us. It must be entirely controlled by our view of them and their condition. 
God sends the rain and the sun upon these evil people as he does us, his children. He knows their sin. He knows their separation from him, their future judgment, but he loves them. And he acted on their behalf by sending his son to die for them, even when they were his enemies. That is how we are to imitate the Lord. We don't don't view them by their sin. We view them by their need, their need for a savior. Their their need for the grace of God, their need for his, his care and his mercy. And finally, Jesus shows that loving their enemy makes them different from the world. So loving your enemy proves your genuine salvation. Loving your enemy shows that you are imitating your father and loving your enemy shows that that you are different from the world. Look, Look at verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? The scribes and Pharisees' concept of love is this. Love those who love you back. Love those who love you back. Greet those who greet you. And in 547, Jesus asks this piercing question in comparison to how the scribes and Pharisees look at love. And he says this, what more are you doing than others? In other words, what what does your love look like? Do you love others the way the world loves? Or do you love them like your heavenly father does? And the difference is this. Christian love acts. It does something. It, it loves and it prays for those who are enemies. It, 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 make, it does action. We, we must not look at our enemy seeing their suffering and do nothing. In Exodus 3, 7 and 9, God sees Israel's suffering. Now, Israel is his chosen people, and yet at the same time, those who reject him are his enemies. And this is God's heart. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and heard their cry. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them. This is not how the world treats its enemies, but it's how we as believers should always treat our enemies. This is how we truly love our neighbor. In Luke 10, a story you are also familiar with, a young lawyer comes to Jesus and he asks him, what what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, what's written in the law? And And the lawyer answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But the lawyer wanting to justify himself, and in a sense at that moment really condemning himself, said to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Who who is my neighbor? And Jesus stuns him with the parable of the Good Samaritan. A Jew is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's attacked by robbers who beat him and leave him to die. A priest sees him. This is a Jewish priest, a priest, a a holy man of God, sees him and crosses the road to avoid him. And a Levite comes by and does the exact same thing, two religious leaders. And then a Samaritan comes by, an enemy of the Jews. 
an, an, a man that, who is lying on the ground, dying, who's been beaten and robbed, a man who he would hate this Samaritan. And rightly, this Samaritan would in return supposedly hate this Jew. But the Samaritan sees this poor man and he has compassion on him. He binds his wounds, gently caring for him with oil and wine. And he picks him up and he puts him on his own animal and he takes him to an inn and he he gives the innkeeper money and says, take care of him. And when I return, if I owe you any more for his care, I will pay you. And Jesus asked the lawyers, the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? And the lawyer rightly answers, the one who showed mercy. Listen, before Jesus Christ saved us, we were all that man beaten and left for dead on the side of the road because of our sin. Our sin brought us to that place. But Jesus did not walk by because he was and is the perfect good Samaritan. He is the one who saw us dying in our sin and he stopped to bind our wounds, to heal our wounds with his love, to clothe us in his righteousness, paying our debt by dying on the cross and promising to return. He had and he still has great mercy for us. He truly loved us, his enemies. He showed us agape love, the love which seeks the highest welfare and good of another. And he did that at his own expense, at his, the cost of his own life. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For while we, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And on the cross, Jesus put his supreme love for his enemies on display when he said, Father, forgive them. We all have enemies. We all have enemies. There are people that you know who hate the church you go to. Sometimes the saddest enemies are the ones who are other believers. We have enemies at work. We have enemies in the neighborhood who don't share our Christian values. And those are painful experiences. But... God has said something that is radically different than the way we want to act. I, I sinfully can be happy when I see someone I violently disagree with get their comeuppance. It's just the sinner in me. But God wants to transform me and he wants to transform you. That when you see your enemy, you don't see this wicked sinner. You, you see someone who is enslaved, entrapped, someone in need of the love of God. 
Jesus ends this part of his sermon with what seems like an impossible command. After he says, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. He says this, here's how you're supposed to do this. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. What an impossible command. I mean, is it even possible? What, what an overwhelming and seemingly attain, unattainable commandment. But, but we're not to lose hope when we read that because Jesus is not talking about moral perfection. He's not talking about moral perfection because if he was, he would have never told us in his Lord's prayer to say, you know, Father, forgive our debts as we forgive those who, who's, who's de- who they're in debt to us, who sin against us. Or 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, that's because we sin. He's not talking about moral perfection. That, that word is, is, by many commentators, is defined perfect, is, is maturity. And so what he's talking about is, is just a transforming grace in maturing us to become more like our Father in heaven, that we imitate him. This is, and this is how the gospel works. This is how the gospel works. It transforms us every day, little by little. Martin Lloyd-Jones again said, the gospel always does two things. It discourages us and encourages us at the same time. The Sermon on the Mount is a perfect illustration of this. Is there anything known to us that is more discouraging than the Sermon on the Mount? Take these detailed illustrations given by our Lord as to how we're to live. We feel that the Ten Commandments, the ordinary moral standards of decency, are difficult enough. But look at these statements about not even looking with lust or going the second mile and so on. There's nothing more discouraging. It seems to throw us right out and to damn our every effort before we have started. It seems utterly impossible. But at the same time, do we know anything more encouraging than the Sermon on the Mount? Do we know anything that pays us a greater compliment? The very fact that we are commanded to do these things carries with it an implicit assertion that it's possible. This is what we're supposed to be doing. And there is a suggestion, therefore, that we can do this. And so the Lord is is really saying, transforming grace You can be perfect. You can mature. You can imitate your father. You can love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You can do this. R. C. H. Lenski in his commentary said, Love indeed sees all the hatefulness and wickedness of the enemy, feels his stabs and his blows. I cannot like a low, mean criminal who may have robbed me and threatened my life. I cannot like a false, lying, slanderous fellow who perhaps has vilified me again and again. But I can, by the grace of God, love them all, see what is wrong with them, desire and work to do them only good, and most of all, to free them from their vicious ways. In other words, to free them from slavery of sin. Now, we're not their savior, but we can love them and demonstrate the love of Christ to them. Matthew 544, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Father, thank you that you make it possible through the powerful work of your spirit. 
for us to be able to love our enemies. And may, may we do so, Lord. And, and if there's anyone right now, Father, who has come to our minds that we have expressed a lack of love towards, would you please help us to love that person we consider a foe, an enemy, somebody we're separated from, somebody we have not yet forgiven, and help us to forgive that your name might be glorified. In Christ's name, amen.